Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where each week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, and I'm a reporter and editor here at Ed Surge. In Jessica Lander's classroom at Lowell High School, every student is a recent immigrant, and some of them are refugees. They hail from about 30 different countries, including the Republic of Congo and Cambodia. And this teacher has been exploring innovative strategies to help best reach these students who are still new to the country. Lander teaches history and civics at this large public school in Massachusetts. And she says one of the most important strategies is to find ways to bring out these students' stories. So her students work on projects where they study stories of immigrants and write their own immigration stories, and another where students choose a favorite family recipe, and together the class compiles a cookbook that they publish to share with the broader community. Lander's interest in this topic of immigrant education has led her to travel the country visiting schools trying different approaches. And she recently published a book about what she's found. It's called Making Americans, Stories of Historic Struggles, New Ideas, and Inspiration in Immigrant Education. It's a topic that she believes every teacher these days, and anyone who cares about the future of our democracy, needs to understand. And this is important for all of us, because right now, one in four students in uh, schools are immigrants or the children of immigrants. And so schools across the country are um, all have wonderful students who are immigrants or the children of immigrants and are grappling with these uh, questions of how do we ensure our students um, feel a strong sense of belonging in our schools, are nurtured, um, are set up for success to both succeed in careers and college and beyond, um, and to create vibrant lives here in the U.S. These students bring with them so many strengths, Lander argues, in language skills and cultural knowledge, and she says she's continually learning from them. But these are strengths that the students themselves don't always see as assets, and they're not always recognized in our formal school system. I recently connected with Lander to hear more about what works in immigrant education and what she learned from the rich stories of her own students. I started by asking how she got interested in the topic in the first place. So I started my teaching career abroad. Um, I taught first in uh, Chiang Mai in northern Thailand, um, teaching at the university level, um, and then came back and taught in the U.S. for a little bit and actually moved back overseas to Cambodia and was teaching um, women's leadership in Phnom Penh. Um, And so coming back to the U.S. and thinking about my next steps in the classroom was really drawn to the city of Lowell, which has been a home to uh, newcomers for hundreds of years. And we have such a a beautifully vibrant, rich community of immigrants from so many different countries, um, immigrants and refugees. And so our school, I I work in a big public school, um, but we're home to students from around the world. And so um, all of my students in my history and civics class are all recent immigrants and refugees. Now, it sounds like you're, you know, you're not a recent immigrant yourself or your family, um, unlike the students you're serving. Do you feel like that? How do you think that plays in? Do you think that is a, yeah, what is, what does that mean as far as like connecting with students from all over and, and that are coming with a very different childhood experience? Absolutely. So, um, 
And there are multiple parts to that question. Um, I, one is I am constantly learning, which is one of the great honors and joys of my um, work, is constantly learning from my students um, and thinking about ways to support them and create opportunities for them to lead um, and knowing that I have so much to learn from my students. Um, I have been privileged to be able to travel um, widely and to live abroad, and I think that really helps and very much informs the work that I do. Um, and then, of course, also the, the deep study of this work informs um, my teaching every day. But I think, too, it's important to think about and remember for each educator um, the moving stories, the migration stories we each carry, um, whether those are stories by choice or by force. Um, so at the very start of my book, um, in the first historical chapter, I can tell you about sort of the three lenses of the book, um, the past, the present, and the personal but in the first historical story, I, I share a little bit about my own family's story. Um, so my uh, great-grandfather came as a six-year-old, um, as a refugee, as, as, sorry, as a seven-year-old, as a refugee um, from what is now Ukraine. Um, and for my book, as I was researching um, the, the stories of key historical moments, laws and cases and schools today and listening and learning from my students, um, I was also diving into the history of my own family and why we came to this country and uh, what was brought and also what was left behind and what was lost and my family's experience in school. So when my uh, great-grandfather Daniel came, uh, his language, his religion, his culture, his history was not wanted in most American schools. Um, and so hearing how, seeing how that affected our family and what was retained and also reading letters from his older sister, who was 14 when she arrived. And at that time, um, she had aged out of the system in New York City and so couldn't go to school anymore. And she had loved learning. And um, hearing her voice through the letters she wrote um, of talking about how, how sad that made her. Um, and so connecting those stories um, and then how does that impact the work I do with my students? But I think first and foremost, it's always um, learning from my students and they have so much to teach me um, as a really sort of key of mind for me. The book includes stories from several students Landers taught, including one named Robert from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And his story starts um, when he's really young and he is bicycling out in um, the plains of the Democratic Republic of Congo because for two years, he's about eight, um, nine, he doesn't exactly know his age, but um, for two years by that point, he had been making um, regular trips with others from his village to go sell cows or maybe a goat or to get um, supplies that his mother didn't grow. And so he'd been making this trip for many years. And and, and it sounds like he or his family, they're herding large horned cows as their kind of life. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so he and his, um, his family had a huge herd. And so he would sometimes be going to help sell a cow or to get supplies. And he was coming back one day. Uh, the older members of the group were um, staying in the village to drink. And he was like, I want to go home. Um, so bikes out at about eight years old. And uh, the story starts with him uh, seeing a lion out in the middle of the plains and going, what do I do? Like to, and as I write in the book in the opening, um, and as he told me, uh, he goes, today I will die. Um, and 
just one of those examples of Robert's enormous strength of pausing, figuring out what does he do? Does, how does he survive? He can't run. Running will ensue a chase. And he slowly, slowly, slowly turns his bicycle around and starts pedaling in the other direction. And to just speak to his bravery and his courage, never looks back. Um, and finally makes it back to the village and um, waits for the older members of the village to come back with him. And he has also had to overcome even deeper hardships. And when he was very uh, young, his father was murdered. And uh, then when he was about 11 or 12, his mother was murdered. Um, And so he escaped um, from uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Uganda on his own and lived for a number of years on the border of Uganda. For Robert, his first experience in school didn't come until he was 12. And it involved learning how to be a student in a formal classroom setting, which he had never experienced before. He's what we would consider um, in immigrant education a slife student, a student with limited or interrupted education. Um, he did not start formal school until the age of about 12. Um, was the first time he was going to a, a sort of a traditional school classroom. Um, and he spent a number of years on the border living with... Um, a family who took him in, and then traveled to a refugee camp farther inland in um, Uganda, and there miraculously um, met part of his family, um, his uh, aunts and uncles. Um, He thought he had had no one else in the world and then discovered this family uh, a number of years later and was able to continue going to school in the refugee camp. Um, And then after a number of years, they were granted refugee status in the U.S. and so came here. And I met Robert when he was 17 in his first full year of school in the U.S. Um, And I don't want to give all of his incredibly powerful story away, um, but he's just an absolutely remarkable young man um, who has taught me so much and has so much to teach all of us. With with his example, like, just the one thing that struck me is that, you know, there's this story that involved a lion. I mean, he his early his early years, the reason he wasn't in school is because his environment was just a, a what would be a different world compared to Lowell, Massachusetts, or where I sit in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, in an American city. So the, you know, I guess just... It, what strikes me in talking to any educator when I think about, you know, students who are immigrants that they might be teaching, we're all, it's like the, the classroom seems like a normalizing space because it's all like, it's, it's, it's standardized, but it, you don't know what the student's story is before that. Like, it's so easy to, it's so easy to just assume whatever you're doing is what people were doing. And in the case of someone like Robert and this whole, you know, this whole category of slife students is they they you can't just assume they know this the the whole routine of like desks and rows and standing up and lining up maybe just say a little bit more about you know the the disconnect or the not just cultural but kind of um it's it's cultural plus of this disconnect that some students might be having when they get to a class yeah absolutely no i think there's some really interesting points you're touching on and 
Um, one is um, that I think it's really important to be creating opportunities to learn from our students and to learn their stories. We don't know their educational backgrounds um, or what they've experienced before coming to our classrooms. And so, and I'll circle back to Robert, but sort of laying this foundation of, um, I definitely try in my work and I saw in a lot of the schools that I traveled to and profiled is really creating opportunities to learn from our students. And that could be opening surveys to get a sense of educational background, um, particularly if we're thinking of SLIFE students. Um, but it's also creating opportunities for students to share their stories in more creative ways. So things like the cookbook project that I was talking about, or there's some other uh, projects we do in our class. And there can also be in more informal settings of opportunities to just talk with and learn from students. And that's really important as we create classrooms that our students feel a strong sense of belonging in, that they feel seen in. Um, we need to be making sure that we are hearing and um, learning from them about their stories um, to be both be able to support them academically and also so that they feel seen and valued. Um, and that's true for all students. It's um, particularly important for SLIFE students who might have had gaps in their formal education. Um, so this makes me think of one of the schools I profile, which is the Global Village Project in Georgia, which is a school for specifically for refugee girls who have spent a long time out of school for SLIFE students. Because in much of um, the U.S., if you arrive as a 16, as a 17-year-old, say as Robert did, and perhaps you've never had an opportunity uh, to attend formal schooling, perhaps because of war or um, economic reasons, um, you are typically put into 10th or 11th grade. Good luck. And we're, we're not setting up students for success there. Um, and so what the school does is it recognizes that, as you were talking about, that students might have these gaps in education, particularly for all of the students at this school in Georgia, that they probably do because they haven't had those chances to attend formal schooling for all the years their peers might have. And so how do you create a curriculum and all the supports to help them catch up and then be able to succeed in high school at the same time? And this is the other part of what I want to touch on is our students, um, and particularly I'm thinking about our older our high school students, are coming with so many amazing assets and strengths. Um, and how do we recognize those and tap into those? We think about, or I think about Robert, and just he has enormous amounts of perseverance and grit, um, the ways in which he has dedicated himself to his learning um, from the time he was very little um, to now where he's at university. Um, the ways in which he built connections with other, uh, in the refugee camp that he lived in Uganda, he ended up, uh, learning and mastering 10 languages. That's remarkable. Um, so our students have just these tremendous wealths of strengths and assets and skills that they bring to our classroom. And so it's how do we recognize, honor, invest in, value those strengths while at the same time, acknowledging that there might be gaps in their education that our schools are and should be supporting. Um, and so balancing both of those identities, um, which I think is something that the Global Village Project in Georgia does really well um, and is something I hope to do in my own practice. But I think it's important to be learning those stories, as you say, learning about our students' background, um, creating those opportunities that trust so that our students um, are sharing some of that information with us. And then 
also making sure we are identifying and valuing all those skills they bring. Um, and so it's doing both of those at the same time. And it's, it's really, it's powerful because students, Robert um, and many of my other students who have had interrupted education bring so many skills to the classroom um, that sometimes in maybe a more a traditional setting might get lost or might not be seen um, because it might not translate to uh, a, an academic grade um, necessarily right at the beginning. Um, so it's important to always be recognizing those skills and strengths. Now, you, you, one of the things you points you make in the book in your suggestions, um, your sort of framework for what um, the education system can do to, to help recent immigrant students or immigrant students is to make sure schools give students chances to dream. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, that is one of sort of what I have found to be the eight pillars of belonging, that as I was researching these stories of the past, the present and the personal, listening to educators, talking to people at the, the heart of historical cases and learning from my own students, it really all came down to belonging and how can we create schools and communities that nurture that sense of belonging. And from that was pulling these eight elements of what it meant or um, what was important um, for nurturing that sense of belonging. Chances to dream is one of them. All eight, the opportunities for new beginnings, supportive communities, assurances of security, committed advocates, recognition of students' strengths and assets, acceptance for who students are and where they come from and all their many identities, and opportunities for students to develop their voices and valuing those voices. For chances to dream, as one of these, is thinking about the ways in which schools are supporting students' futures. Um, and that can be in the short term and the long term, but I mean, our young people are, are coming here, they're leaving communities, they're um, leaving, uh, leaving home, leaving friends, and they, they come with dreams. Um, and whether they're choosing to come here or they're forced to come here because of um, uh, violence or other factors that are pushing them out of their country, um, they carry so many dreams for their future. And so it's how do schools help see those dreams, value those dreams, and then nurture those dreams is really, really essential. Um, particularly as students are creating new homes here. Um, how do they see their future? Where do they see themselves in this community? They, do they see themselves as valued members of this community um, that they are hopefully creating and seeing as their new homes? Um, it's essential that they have these opportunities to dream and not only those opportunities, but then the support to start to turn those dreams into reality. And so that could be everything from um, how we support students to pursue the careers or the, the higher education dreams that they have. It could also be in terms of building communities here. If their dreams are in creating a place where they feel safe and where they have connections. Um, it, again, comes back to listening to our students, to seeing what are their dreams, um, and then what are the things we need to do to support them. But I think that's one of the essential elements if we are 
um, going to ensure that our students really feel a sense of belonging here as they create new homes in their communities across the country. I want to get back to um, some of the innovative models you mentioned in your book in a minute. But I, I think for a lot of listeners who might be in, in the education system in some way as an educator or a leader or just somebody that cares deeply about education and has some um, role in it, I, I wonder if it might be useful to say, what is what are some of the common things that are that are, that are not quite right in the, our typical system that that kind of fail students that are immigrants um, and refugees in ways that you know that your suggestions might get at. But what are what are some common kind of pitfalls here? Yeah, I, I think I'd say first there is amazing innovation happening across the country, and I think that's really powerful and important. And it's. Um, I think about connecting um, ideas and communities so that we can learn from each other. Um, so at a broader scale, I think there, I've never met a teacher who doesn't want to do best by their students. Um, and I think a lot are not sure how necessarily. Um, and so it's how do we connect folks together so that they can learn from each other. I mean, teaching is often, and I know this from my own personal practice, such an isolating profession um, too often. And we don't have enough opportunities to learn from each other in our own communities, let alone in um, schools or um, communities outside of our state um, or across the country. And um, so one is just connecting and being able to learn because we might not know how best to support our students. I think one thing that I think is really important is um, having really high expectations for our immigrant origin students, um, uh, making sure that one is not equating uh, English proficiency with intellect. Um, and so, again, it's recognizing that our students come with many, many, many strengths, um, and those are both academic strengths and what we might term traditionally not academic strengths, but are really essential for success in college and careers and beyond. Um, but also that our students might not be able to yet articulate all of their ideas um, in an academic classroom in English. Um, and so thinking about ways that we are supporting students in being able to uh, share the, the thinking they have, the ideas they have, um, while also supporting them in mastering a new language um, is really, really important. I think another really important thing to be thinking about is uh, tapping into our community more. Um, we have so many strengths in our community. Um, there's a school that, or a set of five schools in Aurora, Colorado that I learned from the Colorado Aurora Action Zone. And they are doing just really powerful work in saying we have amazing assets and strengths in our community, in the nonprofits, in the local hospital, in the businesses, in our parents, our immigrant parents. And how do we tap into these strengths so that they can be all supporting our students? And how can we work collaboratively with each other um, to be supporting our students, that it's not the school as sort of a siloed thing, that schools are these public buildings that should be community hubs. And so what they've envisioned is schools as community hubs that are open from sunrise to sunset and are drawing the community together and connecting the community, and it's all mutually beneficial. And that's really exciting. We often don't do that. It's sometimes hard to 
connect with the community, um, engage schools out into the community, into the school. But there's so many teachers in our community that could be supporting our students um, if we created those systems to create partnerships. Um, so I think it's ensuring that we have high expectations, um, that we are setting high expectations, that we are building partnerships with our, our communities and seeing those strengths. And it is valuing and identifying the strengths of our students. So I, I think about one of my students in the book who talks about Sophia. She had recently um, moved from Turkey. She was a refugee from Iraq. Um, and her family had first fled to Turkey and then was resettled here in the U.S. And her first year, she is mastering a third language. She is learning a new school system. She is learning a new community. She's also navigating uh, systems for her parents in terms of healthcare systems, government systems, because she had the best English in her family at the time. Um, and she still does. Um, and she is doing all of this. And yet, as she told me um, when I was writing the book, she felt that she was somehow working less hard than her English-speaking peers in the school. And that's just, it's devastating to hear that. Because here is this young woman with tremendous skills and strength who is working so, so hard and doing so much and that she thinks she is not working as hard. Because somehow she's not maybe up on it with some of the projects at school? Like, is that the idea? Well, I think it was that she um, hadn't yet mastered English, and so maybe she wasn't yet in AP classes or harder level classes. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's so sad to hear that. Um, and so how do we make sure we're creating schools that are valuing all of the skills that she has? And making sure that she knows that we see her as working just so tremendously hard. Um, and so it's ensuring that our students know that we value their strengths and also identifying for our students those many strengths that they have so that they see them as strengths. The fact that Robert speaks 10 languages. Um, we traditionally talk about English learners, an older term for it is ESL, English as a second language. For Robert, that's ETL, English as a 10th language. Um, and so really, I think focusing on the strengths of our students, um, and that doesn't mean not providing supports where there are places for growth, but it's really important because our so many of my students have expressed to me over years of um, feeling like they are behind or feeling like um, they are somehow lesser than. Um, and it's it's just absolutely not true. And so how do we make sure our students know that they are really valued in the community? You, you mentioned, you know, another model you mentioned was uh, a, a community that has built a school that's a newcomer center um, to to really work with, with recent immigrants. Can you say a little bit more about that model? Yeah, in Houston, Texas, um, the Las Americas program is a school for recent arrivals, and it's a school that is really a bridge um, for kids who are new to the country, maybe uh, less than a year. And there are newcomer centers across the country. Um, and what I found particularly powerful about uh, Las Americas in Houston is the work they're doing around um, trauma therapy and trauma-informed teaching. 
Um, and so they are doing work to help support their students in starting to master English and starting to understand sort of like the, the U.S. education system so that they can transition into um, their neighborhood school. But they're also recognizing that their students are carrying much more than their book bags to school. Um, and that many of our students are carrying the scars. Sometimes they're still wounds um, that could be um, trauma that they've experienced in home country. It could also be trauma that they experienced in uh, their uh, migration. Um, and it could also be the uh, the the trauma and the the difficulties in navigating a new community and um, a new space and not being with friends or possibly being with new family. A lot of our students are experiencing either family separation or family reunification. So sometimes our, our kiddos are here on their own. Um, sometimes they have traveled to now live with uh, a parent or another family member who they haven't lived with for many years. Um, so it might be the case that their mom or their dad moved to the U.S. many, many years ago, and they've been living with other family members. And so they're now having to rebuild relationships with those family members here in the U.S., and that's really hard. They're missing family back home. All of these things impact our young people and impact um, their growing up and also impact them in school. And so what the school does, which I think is powerful, is acknowledges that and creates space to support students as they are hopefully healing, um, but also just growing and learning to process uh, emotions or connections or new relationships, um, say, be it with parents, so one of the things they do, um, which is actually something I took that idea and sort of made a small version of in my classroom, is uh, they created a, a sensory garden outside. And this comes from, uh, the idea for, of it came from this powerful story that one of the teachers told me of uh, a boy who was just very, very upset, um, could not study because he was missing his younger brother who was back home in home country. And he just could not be in the classroom, could not sit and learn. And they tried all sorts of strategies to try to help him. None of them worked until one day his teacher suggested, will you be our caterpillar manager? Because this boy had been one of the, the primary caregivers for his brother when his um, family was at work. And so he felt like his brother was his responsibility. And so the teacher asked, can you be our caterpillar manager? Can you care for the caterpillars, feed them, clean up the poop? And the boy agreed. And this got the boy into the classroom for a couple minutes and then a little bit longer and then a couple hours and then full days. And from the story of this uh, little boy who became the caterpillar manager, uh, one of the social workers at the school came up with the idea for this garden of creating a garden outside that had plants, sensory plants, lots of herbs from all over the world that their students would recognize. And it became a place where if a student is feeling upset or lonely or sad, or maybe they can't yet express what emotions they're feeling, they can come out into the space and often with a teacher or a social worker and just be in the space, smell the plants. Maybe they garden some and 
maybe that gardening leads to conversations about, you know, how this bougainvillea plant is growing. And then when we transplant it over here, it takes time to regrow. Um, it's hard when we uproot this plant, we have got to give it some um, nutrients, we've got to give it some water, uh, it's going to be a little shaky, we're going to have to pack the dirt down. And this, of course, leads to conversations around migration and how hard it is to be uprooted from your home and to build a new home somewhere else. Or you might see connections with a tomato plant or an herb that your grandmother or grandfather planted back home in home country, and that leads to conversations about them. And the, the, the garden created uh, an opportunity for these conversations um, and for windows and doors for students to begin to process um, and to um, talk through these experiences and these relationships um, that they were building or that were now new because they were separated from family members. And so just a powerful, powerful example of a school trying to support their students in many different ways, both in the sort of traditional academic, English, math, science, history, um, and also supporting them social-emotionally. One other thing I, de- I definitely feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask, which is the political environment right now, the highly polarized where immigration is kind of a, you know, a, a, a big issue in the country politically and in sometimes um, ways that that might go against some of the advice that you're giving in the book. I wonder how much um, in your research on, you know, work with recent immigrant students and refugee students, what, um, you know, how much did you see pushback to supports and how much, how are, how concerned are you that schools might come up, uh, come up against um, resistance if they really try to, to help students um, in this, in this way. As I traveled across the country, um, talking with teachers and talking to my students, I found just tremendous both courage and optimism, optimism for my students um, about, and these are the seven students I profile, about creating new homes here. Um, and I mean, the, the historical stories, which we haven't gotten into, but um, just to me showed tremendous courage and bravery from um, folks over the last 150 years who have doggedly pushed for um, greater acceptance, for um, more support for students, um, for really seeing and valuing um, immigrant origin students in schools and communities. Um, And that it takes time, um, but that uh, there are so many powerful examples of folks fighting over years and um, in many cases succeeding um, in creating legislation and creating um, new approaches to education, that I am optimistic, um, despite what we read in the news, um, because what I see on the ground in uh, the communities I work with is schools valuing our students and our students making powerful change in our communities. And so I think it's about um, making sure that everyone hears these stories. Um, to be hearing about these really innovative, creative ways that schools are working today to support students and doing powerful work and then seeing what those students are doing. Um, I, it, 
it's infectious to to listen to those stories and to hear from these educators and to see their success, to see the ways in which students at the all-immigrant high school in Bladensburg, Maryland, um, the international school at Langley Park, is having students lead on um, in academic settings, at competitions, uh, in AP classes, on the soccer field, and all these different ways that students are being leaders and really shaping the narrative in their community about immigrant origin students, to seeing the, the tremendous success they're seeing in Guilford, North Carolina, where they've reimagined literacy for um, immigrant origin students across 126 schools, and they're seeing test scores shoot up. Um, after they implemented this new approach that really gets students engaged with grappling um, with hard, meaty, juicy sentences, that they're just, I I can't imagine hearing these and not walking away inspired and excited. And so I think it's about getting these stories out there. And of course, the heart of this book is hearing from our young people. Um, The seven students who share their story and the the hundreds more that I've had the honor to work with over the years have so much to teach us and their stories are so powerful and the work they do every day, showing up in class, working to master new language, creating homes in a new community is so tremendously inspiring. And so my hope is, is that if we can tell these stories, if we can create opportunities to learn from our young people, that folks will be swept up in this work um, in thinking about reimagining immigrant education. And two, coming back to sort of part of our, our, our conversation right at the beginning is connecting those stories um, and drawing connections between uh, folks who've been in the country for more generations, um, that all of us have stories of migration and movement, um, whether they're stories of migration across borders um, or whether they're stories of folks who've been um, in this country for um, centuries and centuries. For um, all, all folks have stories of migration. It could be a story of migration across a state line or across a neighborhood as we moved houses, or it could be a story of an ancestor. And those stories, of course, are different. They're stories of migration through force or um, by choice. Um, but I think there are connection points that are really powerful and are going to allow for empathy and creating communities in beautiful ways. And I see that in the work in my classroom as I watch kids from across the world build friendships with each other. I see that in our community. And I'm seeing that in communities across the country. Great. Well, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast and letting me talk about immigrant education. I mean, it is really exciting work for me. Uh, it's been uh, the the work that has been inspiring me for so many years, and it's the work of my life. Um, and I think I'm just really excited to be able to talk with you and with other educators because this is work that can't be done alone. Um, I think one of the things that I found most powerful is the the exhilarating, um, just just how exhilarated I was in being able to learn from my colleagues across the country, to learn from my young people, and knowing this is only the beginning. And so I think if we're serious about reimagining immigrant education, we're going to be doing this together. And so it's having conversations, it's sharing ideas with each other, and it's creating more opportunities to learn from each other. So it's exciting to be able to talk with you um, and... It's just exciting to share these ideas and to be working with educators. 
Well, good. I should let you get back to it, I think. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we explore how education is changing. If you like the show, please take a minute to rate or review this podcast wherever you're listening right now. It doesn't take long, and, and it helps people find the show. Or give us a shout out on social media. We are still working on some exciting episodes for the coming weeks, including the finale of our series on student distraction and disengagement after COVID, and another episode on the impact of chat GPT on teaching. If you have a story to share about either of those important issues, please hit me up at jeff at edsurge.com. This week's episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and I am on Twitter at jryoung or at my homepage, jeffyoung.net. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.